This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to AOA on this Wednesday, January 5th. Boy, the first work week of the year is off to a busy start in Washington, D.C. Despite the snowfall that kind of shut that city down here the last two days, there is still a lot of action happening on the policy side and on the court side. We'll be checking in with Todd Neely here in just a moment to hear what could be coming in front of the Supreme Court of the U.S. later on this week. Then we're going to speak with Mac Marshall. He's the vice president of marketing intelligence with the U.S. Soybean Export Council. Boy, beans have been on fire. Mac's going to share with us an outlook as we look ahead to 2022. And then Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the RFA, Renewable Fuels Association, will be joining us. Yesterday, he was in a virtual hearing with the EPA talking about their changes to the RVOs, Renewable Volume Obligations, EPA released at the end of the year. He'll share what he talked about yesterday with us in segment three. And finally, folks, today, the Potato Expo gets underway in Anaheim, California. Cam Quarles, the president of the National Potato Council, will join me in segment four. Before we get into all of that, let's talk about what's going on here in the courts. Todd Neely of DTN has been covering this in detail. Todd, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Glad to be here, Mike. Thank you. You know, we spoke yesterday with Gary Bass, one of the attorneys on the NPPC, American Farm Bureau Federation, lawsuit against Proposition 12 in California. Supreme Court will make a decision as to whether or not they'll hear that case this Friday. Todd, you talked to lots of folks in Washington, D.C. What do you think the court is thinking right now? Are the odds pretty good they'll pick it up? Uh, Mike, you know, that's a great question. I, I don't know that the odds are uh, in favor of any case being taken, frankly. I mean, the Supreme Court gets hundreds of cases uh, requested every year. Um, on average, they take about 80. And so it has to be something that's quite significant to make it before the justices. I know that, uh, you know, for Proposition 12, for example, there are a lot of big issues about the Commerce Clause. Uh, there's a lot of uh, There's a lot of state power issues involved in that particular case. And I would say of all the ag cases that are before the court or potentially before the court, Proposition 12 is probably one of those that, that could be accepted. Uh, you know, there's others involved as well. You know, we've got E15, we've got uh, Clean Water Act situation, we've got a Roundup petition by Bayer. So there's just a lot going on. It's really hard to say at this point uh, where the court's gonna go. Yeah. And, you know, I want to mention that's going to come out on Friday. We'll hear whether or, not, whether or not they'll take the Prop 12 case on Friday. Also, Todd, you mentioned that Clean Water Act case. This is another one that that is pitting really federalism and the states against the Supreme Court looking for some clarity. Can you explain to us exactly what's happening here in this Sackett's case against uh, EPA? Yeah, you know, Mike, uh, for a number of years, the Sackett's, they're Idaho property owners, and they've come up against the EPA on a Clean Water Act uh, jurisdiction case, uh, they were basically uh, told by the EPA that they have wetlands on their on their property and they cannot do anything with that property. Um, a lot of issues that come about through this case, uh, you know, we've seen a number of Clean Water Act cases come before the Supreme Court. Maybe one of the most notable is in 2006 when uh, uh, the Supreme Court ruled in the Rapanos versus U.S. case. 
Um, and that particular case kind of set the tone for where we are today in terms of uh, what EPA can regulate and what they can't regulate. Uh, one of the most interesting facets about the new water rule that's under development by the EPA, uh, we've already heard from the agency where it's going on how it's going to determine a lot of, uh, a lot of the uh, jurisdictional uh, questions. Uh, the big thing coming up through that is the significant nexus test. Um, you know, in the, in the Rapanos case, we had uh, Justice Anthony uh, Kennedy uh, talk about significant nexus. And, and basically, it's the idea that uh, even dry land could be considered jurisdictional by the EPA uh, as long as there can be a connection made to, 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 to what we call traditional navigable waters. Uh, what this uh, new case coming before the court is, is really interesting. It wants Supreme Court to go back and look at that issue in that particular case and decide whether uh, the Anthony Kennedy test would hold up or whether uh, another, uh, another test that was brought forward by some other justices in the case would be the, the way to go. Uh, so it's really a complicated case, but it, there's a lot there. And it sounds like in this case, really what they're looking for is for the Supreme Court to clarify which of these two distinctions or definitions do we need for clean water? Does the waterway have to be connected on the surface or can, as you mentioned, it just be a significant nexus? I've got to imagine that's a, a an issue they're going to have to resolve eventually. How did the EPA respond when this case was uh, presented to the Supreme Court? Well, you know, Mike, they have actually, they filed briefs in opposition to this case. In fact, they want, uh, they want to be allowed to continue their work on the current rewrite of the water rule. Um, and they, they make the argument that, hey, if we get this rule done, then may, perhaps this case can come before the court, which is a very interesting way of looking at it. But um, it really does come down to, you know, what's the future of jurisdiction when it comes to water. And I think a lot of people in ag would tell you that significant nexus causes a lot of issues, a lot of, a lot of questions. Um, I think people are concerned uh, that if we go back to the significant nexus test to, you know, a greater degree, uh, that that really is going to give EPA a lot of authority over, over land. And I think, uh, you know, this is one of those cases, I mean, you could see the court taking this case and answering this question. but there again, it's it's uh, it's really kind of a coin toss on that. And you know that significant nexus test. We talk a lot about it. One of the things it does is not provide certainty to landowners. There's no way to know if your land is a significant nexus unless you bring an expert out to evaluate it, which is an additional cost that uh, anybody who owns land that faces this challenge might have to uh, to face. Todd, speaking of additional costs, Bayer over the past several years has seen some additional costs due to lawsuits against Roundup. They have petitioned the Supreme Court to basically for relief, looking to to change their jury verdict against Roundup. Tell us, what is the Supreme Court going to decide in this case if they take it? Well, Mike, I think this case in particular is probably, you know, most cases have some technical issue involved. Um, Usually it's an issue of precedent, obviously. That's what the Supreme Court deals with. Uh, But on this particular case, Bayer has come to the court saying that there were errors made uh, in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in San Francisco. Uh, A number of them very technical. You know, one of those was a a state law, which is a failure to uh, warn claims. Um, and then there's some other uh, some other technical issues that, that Bear is looking at. Um, I think this case is very interesting in the fact that when you look at all the ad cases uh, that have been petitioned to the court, this one in particular, the court seems to have uh, showed a lot more interest in. 
Uh, they've asked the Solicitor General to file a brief in the case. Uh, they kind of want the Solicitor General's take on on this particular case. And so that, that to me, says that uh, the, the justices are looking very closely at the Bear case, and perhaps that might be one of them that they uh, they agree to hear. So effectively, Bayer is saying, look, this case was decided wrongly, throw it out, and then we'll have to proceed Correct. to trial with these lawsuits all again. Absolutely. Yeah, and there could be a big, uh, big ongoing uh, additional cases to come. All right. Lots of things to watch in D.C. Todd Neely, thanks for keeping an eye on things, and thanks for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And folks, stick around. Mac Marshall from the U.S. Soybean Export Council when we return. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. For more than 135 years, the editors of Progressive Farmer have provided generations of farmers and ranchers with the information they need and trust to make informed and profitable decisions. We know you need that content delivered on multiple platforms, so it's available when you want it. That's why we created our weekly podcast called Field Posts. Join me, Sarah Mock, each week as I interview agriculture's top thought leaders, as well as farming's most diverse team of editors at the Progressive Farmer and DTN on a wide range of subject matter. From farm policy and crop production to finances, technology, and so much more, you'll have a front row seat to learn and engage in what's happening in agriculture today. You can find the podcast listed on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or by visiting our website at dtnpf.com backslash field posts. Recently on Agriculture of America, we had a couple important reports released by the USDA. We saw their cattle on feed report come out. We also had the quarterly hogs and pigs report come out. Dennis Smith from Archer Financial Services, not many surprises. Not many surprises. The uh, the marketing number was a good solid number at 105. One extra marketing day. Placements were at 104. Looking forward or, or looking at the reaction to this, I would think you should see some bull spread activity. In other words, the front end of the market, I would think, would be a little stronger than the back end of the market. We're pivoting or we're looking for the, the next cash market, 135 last week. There's talk of uh, maybe it'll be much closer to 140 when it gets established later this week. For the information important to rural America, join us on Agriculture of America. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. 
Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Hello, folks. Thanks for tuning in to AOA Today. You know, next week we are going to get the January World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates released from the USDA. That will be effectively our final yield numbers for the corn and soybean crop of 2021. We're getting more and more estimates coming out ahead of that report as traders and analysts try to pin down exactly what to expect next Tuesday. Farm Futures magazine recently conducted an email survey of their growers. They found that the yields might move upward a little bit next week. They've got the corn yield pegged at 177.2 bushels per acre, leading to a little bit of an increase in carryout. Same story on soybeans. Their growers reported 51.4 bushels per acre. So also they're expecting a little bit of a jump in carryout there. So that's what to come potentially potentially on the supply side. But as we think about soybeans in particular, the past two years have really been a message of demand, fantastic demand domestically and incredible demand globally. One person and organization who is really keeping their finger on the pulse of that demand picture is the U.S. Soybean Export Council and their vice president of market intelligence, Mac Marshall, is joining us today. Mac, I understand you were in the Middle East here just recently talking about aquaculture. What's the demand picture look like for bean meal in 2022? Oh, that's right, Mike, and uh, good morning. It's great to be on the show. Yeah, I was in Dubai last month uh, as part of a USEC uh, regional uh, aquaculture conference where, you know, and, and, and USEC puts on these events uh, really around the world, which are really meant to bring together end users of U.S. Uh, soy and soy products um, with uh, our farmers, we had a panel of farmers uh, where we share information, you know, not just about what's going on with the U.S. crop, but, you know, to talk, I think, about market dynamics. That's what I was there for, uh, really, to um, go on, uh, you know, provide some insight into, uh, you know, like the domestic dynamics that are unfolding here in the U.S., certainly around renewable diesel, implications for soybean meal, uh, to give our end users a better picture about, you know, how the whole value chain is looking. But I, I got to tell you, one of the great things about these uh, these events is it's a learning experience for everybody. I mean, we hear about aquaculture, we hear about how it's a burgeoning source of demand in, in many parts of the globe. But, you know, once you actually get and you meet with some of the end users, uh, I walked away with some things that I hadn't fully appreciated. So Egypt, for example, you know, it's our third largest export destination on a country basis after China and, uh, and Mexico. Um, you know, the, the crush uh, expansion there has been really, really significant. And the feed mills, I, I didn't know this until the conference, you know, our, the, the feed mills over there that supply the aquaculture industry have, have grown by nearly 80% just from 2013 to 2018. And that's, that's really, uh, you know, I think, as you said, the last couple of years have really been a story of demand for the U.S. soy complex. And Egypt has certainly one, been one of those hallmarks. And a lot of that is fundamentally underpinned by this growth uh, that we're having in the aquaculture space. 
You know, when you think about a country like Egypt and you look at their imports, are they predominantly importing whole beans from the U.S. and then crushing them domestically? Or is there the potential for them to start buying sort of the value added bean meal from us directly? Mac, where do they sit financially? Well, Egypt, um, you know, has, uh, again, expanded its uh, its crush and is primarily a whole bean importer uh, from the U.S. Um, so it, it's not necessarily a value-added play in terms of, of shipping meal, but there are certainly a number of other markets globally where uh, meal is the main play, and a lot of that is, uh, you know, still driven by aquaculture. Uh, a lot of that is in uh, Latin America. Ecuador is certainly a uh, has been a growing market. You know, we shipped, I think, over 600,000 tons of meal there just this last marketing year, and um, uh, and, and a lot of that is also driven by value-added aquaculture, not necessarily for consumption within uh, the country of production, but Ecuador, of course, is re-exporting out to the world. So that's just one example. Interesting. So as you look at, and let's talk aquaculture specifically, because we're on the topic right there. This is something that, from an outsider's perspective, looking in five, ten years ago, I don't remember anybody really talking about aquaculture on the global scene. And yet here over the past three, four years, Mac, it has become a consistent feature. When I'm talking to folks who are in the soybean export game, it seems like this industry has has exploded globally over the past few years. Am I misreading it or is that the case? No, I, I think that's absolutely true. Um, and, you know, it was something that was growing even, you know, you know, five, ten years ago as well, just obviously not at the at the same volume that I think we've been seeing in recent years. Uh, I, I think um, you know one of the one of the pieces there. I mean, the the groundwork has been laid for a long time. I think for uh, for aquaculture to really take off. I remember reading reports out of uh, out of you know various intergovernmental agencies you know years ago that talk about hey, you know, uh, open open water catch, uh, which is you know primarily where you get fish meal from, which is you know, has, has historically been the primary, uh, you know, feed source for uh, for, for fish. Um, you know, there, there's a declining availability on that. Uh, you know, uh, oceans are, you know, have, have traditionally been uh, overcaught. So we have to look for, you know, new sources of feed or repurposing existing sources of feed, which I think is the, is the case here with soy meal, as it's most germane to us, um, you know, to help, uh, you know, play a critical role in, advancing a, a protein that a lot of the world consumes. I mean, you look at a lot of developing markets and uh, the, the protein ration in human diets is, you know, more borne by, you know, fish and aqua species, I think, than we, uh, than we traditionally appreciated. And, you know, uh, we've, we've said it before, we talk about how the world will be adding, you know, a, a, a billion plus people over the next 30 years. Uh, and a lot of that's centered in these parts of the world where uh, aquaculture plays a critical role in, as, as a dietary staple. So it's certainly something that, uh, you know, we're excited uh, to play a role in, uh, in supplying and helping uh, provide additional food security for people around the world uh, by virtue of supporting uh, local aquaculture industries. Yeah, that's incredible. Getting those feedlots of the sea operational and feeding them some American soybean meal. Mac, that's on the meal side. You mentioned renewable diesel. That, I think, was the hottest topic in uh, in soybeans in the bean sector in 2021. Looking out to 2022, can that enthusiasm persist through this new year? 
I, I absolutely think so. Um, you know, if I rewind a year ago, uh, we started seeing a wave of new plant announcements um, that would be coming online, I think, you know, faster than uh, a lot of industry observers would have expected. And, you know, candidly, at, at, at that point in time, it's like, okay, well, you know, these plants are getting announced. What's actually going to get built? Um, there are potentially some limiting factors. We do need to see, uh, you know, crush expansion to meet this. And then in the last couple months, uh, we, we've seen so much private sector uh, investment coming in, you know, from, you know, large crushers as well as co-ops, uh, just looking to install new crushing capacity, which is going to be needed to help supply uh, soybean oil as one of many feedstocks to uh, renewable diesel production. So it, it's something that uh, I think, as you said, dominated the headlines in 2021. Uh, it certainly, um, you know, has has steam in 2022 as well, uh, except that I think the difference between now and a year ago is that we're starting to see more commitments, uh, you know, and, and real investment capital um, being put into the intermediate part of the value chain, which is crush, which is, a, of course, a critical, uh, you know, part of the journey to uh, supply the feedstock needed for renewable diesel. I actually... Um, I had the, the pleasure last month uh, also on a, on a USAC trade mission of, you know, visiting uh, some uh, energy refineries out in California and, uh, and seeing, uh, you know, the facilities there. And, you know, I, I was holding up a couple vials of soybean oil and sustainable aviation fuel and traditional biodiesel and renewable diesel. And it's just, it, it's so cool to see uh, something that is, is coming from a soybean, uh, you know, grown on a farm uh, throughout the Midwest being utilized in our energy transition. I mean, we talk about it, but actually being able to hold and see and, and feel the product and be there uh, in, in that space really makes it a lot more tangible and real for me. Yeah, that is fantastic to hear. It's great to see the products of flyover countries, so to speak, powering the planes flying over us. It's a nice little uh, feather into our cap. But Mac, I think one of the questions I hear from growers a lot is, will renewable diesel survive on its own or does it need the policy in place from this administration to make it sustainable? Well, you know, it, it, I, I think um, it, that's why I place such an emphasis on, you know, the private sector investment. Um, I think once you have... Uh, you know, the private sector come in and really put, you know, significant amounts of capital uh, behind this and that it's being, you know, I think driven by the market signals that have come from the energy space. That's what gives me the most enthusiasm because that means that, you know, there's, there's a, you know, the market is responding. I mean, that, that's, the, that's a lens through which I, I like to Let's a lens through which to watch. And I appreciate that insight. Mac Marshall, the VP of Market Intelligence, the U.S. Soybean Export Council. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Always a pleasure, Mike. And folks, stick around when AOA returns. We'll be talking to Jeff Cooper of the Renewable Fuels Association about his hearing yesterday with the EPA on their RVOs. Stay with us on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, 
Farm Radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. As a truck driver, I've learned how important road safety is. I know that large trucks need more time and room to stop. That's why I always hang back and follow other vehicles at a safe distance. Everyone can help keep our roads safe. Next time you're driving, try to remember to always give trucks extra space when you merge in front of them. Let's all plan to share the road safely. Learn how at www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, as we take a look at the grain and livestock sector on this Wednesday morning, we see pressure in wheat markets, and that has helped to drive us a little bit lower in corded soybeans as well here this morning. Live at feeder cattle are mixed to lower, while the hog market is following through on yesterday's buying with some moderate strength. Really, the only markets in the green, soybean oil and lean hogs here as we work through our morning. Now, we did get a soybean sale announced this morning of 132,000 metric tons to unknown destinations for new crop. And we'll have to see if that does end up helping out the soybean sector here today as the grain and soy markets again weaker following Tuesday's huge gains. Maybe a little bit of profit taking as well here today. Weather in key areas of South America continues to be the bullish underlying factor in both corn and soy markets. Of course, we're watching weather issues with wheat crops in the Plains states, but wheat is a crop that could turn around really quickly if it gets good weather. Right now, March core down four three quarters, six oh four three quarters. May core down four and a half at six oh five. January soybeans five lower, thirteen seventy three and three quarters. March down five and three quarters at thirteen eighty four. January bean meal down a dollar seventy a ton, four twenty five ninety. January soybean oil up sixty five points at fifty eight seventy nine. March Chicago wheat seven and a half lower, seven sixty two and a half. March Kansas City wheat fourteen lower at seven ninety. March spring wheat down thirteen and a quarter, nine fifty seven and a quarter. February live cattle forty lower, one thirty seven forty two. April down forty seven, one forty two twenty. Feeder cattle for January fifty lower, one sixty two seventeen. February lean hogs twenty seven higher, eighty forty two. April hogs up seventy five, eighty seven seventy five. Crude oil up a dollar thirty eight a barrel, seventy eight thirty seven. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage an advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We We win. We we, we We are are the Foundation foundation Fighting fighting Blindness. Blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Oh, welcome back, folks. Thanks for tuning in. We are talking about things happening in Washington, D.C. this week because it is a full slate of events expected to happen on Friday from the Supreme Court of the U.S. They are considering a case tied in with ethanol and E15. And we've also got the EPA yesterday holding hearings about their changes to the renewable volume obligations, the numbers that EPA released at the tail end of last year. And one of the folks who testified yesterday in that hearing for EPA was Jeff Cooper. The president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association, he joins us this morning to help shed a little light on everything that's going on with regards to ethanol in D.C. Jeff, thanks for talking to us today. Well, good morning, Mike, and thanks for having me. Let's talk first about yesterday. You had the chance to go before the EPA to present your thoughts to, about their RVO release. Jeff, what did you tell them? Well, sure, Mike. In December, as you mentioned, EPA put out a really an expansive package of proposals on the renewable fuel standard, and they, the agency had a hearing yesterday to solicit feedback from affected parties. And so we had an opportunity to share our thoughts directly with EPA. We had good turnout from the biofuels and, and agriculture industries. Uh, a number of our member companies testified. We, we saw uh, leaders from state and national corn grower associations uh, testifying. So I want to thank all them for, for taking the time uh, to share our thoughts with EPA as yesterday. And, and really our message to the agency was that overall, we think the proposals they put out are a step in the right direction uh, and should help move the RFS toward getting you know back on track. Uh, and so we support most of what they're proposing to do, but, but there is more work that needs to be done. And there are a few major problems with these proposals that need to be corrected. Um, and I guess more specifically, we, we you know strongly support their proposal to require 15 billion gallons of conventional renewable fuels like corn ethanol this year. Uh, that's what the law uh, requires. That's what Congress intended. Uh, so we're happy to see that. We also support EPA's proposal to deny all of the pending refinery exemption requests that have been filed by small refineries. And we know what a devastating impact those exemptions have had on the RFS in the past. Uh, and we're happy to see EPA also proposing to reinstate 500 million gallons of blending requirements that were illegally waived all the way back in 2016. So it took EPA five years to, to get around to doing it, but they are finally proposing to restore that volume. So that's, that's the good news, Mike. The bad news is, as, as we've talked about in the past, EPA is also proposing to go back in time and retroactively adjust 2020 RFS requirements that were already finalized uh, and, and in our view had been sort of etched in stone all the way back in, in late 2019. And we think it would be uh, completely unprecedented and, and really completely unnecessary uh, for EPA to take that step. And we don't even think it would be legal for them to do that. So we shared all of those views with EPA yesterday and it's our hope that they take that feedback and and make adjustments to these proposals before they're finalized here in the next six or eight weeks. Jeff, it always fascinates me how the government can go back two years in history and change the amount of production. <laughs> what in practice, let's say the the USD, or excuse me, the EPA uh, listens to you and they they don't roll back the requirements for 2020. What does that do to the ethanol market? Why are these refiners still fighting for this for something that was two years in the rearview mirror now? Yeah, we, we get that question a lot. People ask, well, why, why does it matter? 2020 is now two years ago. How would going back and revising the 2020 numbers make any difference? 
And the short answer is this, Mike, because of all the delays on the RFS, uh, refiners still have not been required by EPA to prove that they blended the required amounts of biofuels in 2020. And so it's it's still an open matter uh, for all intents and purposes. And, and so that deadline for them to show compliance with 2020 is coming up. And if EPA were to lower the 2020 requirements now retroactively, then it would let refiners off the hook, Those especially those refiners that didn't blend their required volumes in 2020. And it would send them the signal that, uh, hey, you know, these final numbers don't really mean anything. Um, you don't really need to pay attention to what EPA finalizes for these blending requirements. Uh, so that's really why the 2020 number is, is so important. If EPA does uh, agree with us and they leave the 2020 standards alone, what that does is then those refiners that need to show compliance um, are going to have to go out and accumulate credits or, or, or demonstrate that, yes, they did, in fact, uh, blend the required amount of, of biofuels and that just helps keep, um, you know, tightness and, and strength in the marketplace for ethanol. Okay, so that makes sense. This uh, this change to the 2020 rule is really just to hold the feet to the fire and to show that, look, these these deadlines, these numbers have consequences if you don't meet it. Because there were several refineries that said, no, we're just not going to comply and hope for administrative relief. And I guess we'll see. Yep. When do you expect the EPA to make a decision on uh, the final numbers for these RVOs? Well, they are still accepting written comments for another month. So February 4th is the deadline for written comments. Uh, then we expect to EPA will probably take about a month after that um, to process and consider all the feedback they got from the public and, and publish a final rule. So we're, we're probably looking at early March, mid-March maybe, before we see final numbers for, for EPA. Uh, but they are, you know, I, I think they want to get these numbers finalized as quickly as we do. We're already into 2022 and we do not want to repeat the situation we've been in the last several years where EPA has been habitually late with publishing these numbers and the marketplace has no idea what is actually going to be required. Yeah, hopefully we can get to a point where EPA re releases the yearly targets maybe in the same year that they're due. That would be a nice change with regard to the RFS. Jeff, we've got other news happening in D.C. this week. Todd Neely touched on it briefly at the top of the show, and this is the Supreme Court challenge regarding E-15 that they might decide to hear this Friday. Can you tell us what is the challenge that the ethanol industry is bringing to the Supreme Court? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, and, and you might recall that this past July, July 2021, uh, the D.C. Circuit Court actually overturned a rule that EPA had published that had finally allowed the year-round sale of E15, and that's something our industry had been pushing on for 10 years. We finally got EPA to take that step uh, back in 2019, but of course the refiners didn't like that. They sued EPA, and the the, the courts finally you know, ruled on that last July, and unfortunately, they, they found in favor of the refiners and overturned uh, that that E15 decision by by EPA. And so, you know, on un, un, you know, if it's if that's if that's left to stand, uh, it puts us back in a situation where we can't sell E15 year round. Uh, so, uh, others in the ethanol industry uh, appealed that July court decision to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court will be deciding on Friday whether it wants to review that decision and take up that appeal or not. So we are very hopeful that they do uh, decide that that uh, lower court decision needs 
review and would love to see the Supreme Court overturn it. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we've got our fingers crossed and, and hoping that's the way things turned out. And, you know, I was reading through some of the details of this case, and I'm, I'm certainly not a lawyer, not an expert, but it, it appears to me that the EPA is saying because there is literally a one pound per square inch difference in the pressure of E15 versus E10, that's what renders it unsaleable in the summer months, which, of course, makes retailers a little more hesitant to keep it in stock. What, is, is all this fight really just about one PSI? That, that's exactly what this whole thing is about. It's about one pound per square inch of vapor pressure. Uh, and, and E10, the blend that we're all familiar with and is ubiquitous in the marketplace today, gets a one pound per square inch waiver. Uh, and so it, it has a higher volatility limit than E15. And we think that is ridiculous. The two fuels should have the same limitation, the same you know RVP vapor pressure cap. And that's what EPA had done with this rulemaking uh, that was overturned, unfortunately, last July. And so we're back in a situation where E15 has to meet a lower vapor pressure limit than E10, uh, which just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And, and uh, it's just one of those artifacts of, of regulations that were adopted 30 years ago when nobody ever dreamed that we might have gasoline containing 15% ethanol. Hmm. All right. So the Supreme Court will decide whether or not to hear that case on Friday. If they take it and they side with the ethanol industry, that, of course, would be the best case scenario, get E15 year round. Right. If they don't take it and the, the D.C. Circuit Court decision stands, what is the roadmap forward for getting E15 back uh, in retail stations year round? Well, there are a couple of other approaches that we are pursuing. One would be uh, legislation that would uh, fix this issue once and for all. Uh, via law, and, and there have been proposals introduced in both the House and Senate uh, that would do just that. They would make a, a you know surgical change to the the uh, statutory language that governs gasoline volatility, and, and that would fix this problem. That would be the cleanest and, and best way to do this. But of course, moving legislation in this Congress is incredibly difficult and uncertain. Uh, so there are other approaches that we're pursuing as well, and one of those is working with the EPA uh, to remove that one pound waiver that applies to E10, and that would put E10 and E15 on equal footing again, and it would require refiners and, and fuel suppliers to lower the vapor pressure of the gasoline blend stock they're producing at refineries. So it gets very technical and, and in the weeds, but there are definitely ways around this uh, barrier that EPA uh, should undertake, and, and we, we're encouraging them to do that uh, pending the outcome of, of the you know Supreme Court's decision on whether they're going to pick this up or not. All right, Jeff. Well, we will be touching base with you after the Supreme Court makes their decisions. Hopefully, it's a win for ethanol, but we will wait and see. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. Take care. And folks, stick around. When AOA returns, we're going to talk with Cam Quarles. He's the director of the National Potato Council. Potato Expo 2022 is getting underway in Anaheim. Stay with us on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, 
Go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Every Tuesday, we'll be sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS. Join us and learn how CHS creates the vital connections that empower agriculture, helping farmers and ranchers like you succeed. We'll hear from different voices from throughout the cooperative system, sharing stories about how good things happen when people work together. Join us around the table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Progressive Farmer knows you need content delivered on multiple platforms, so it's available when you want it. That's why we've created our weekly podcast, Field Posts, to bring you convenient and easy to listen to interviews on key topics and trends. Join me, Sarah Mock, as I interview some of agriculture's best thoughts. You'll have a front row seat to learn what's happening in agriculture today. You can view our library of podcasts and upcoming topics by going to dtnpf.com backslash field posts. Oh, nice engine. Supercharged? Yep. High porosity and aggregates? Yep. Porous medium for gas exchange? Uh Uh-huh. Microbial catalytic potential and repository for carbon and nitrogen? Check, check, and check. Oh, man, that is good under the hood. And to think I used to be impressed with hammies. So... When was the last time you looked under the hood at your farm's production engine? At your soil? Is it as healthy and productive as it can be? Stop by your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out and unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by NRCS and this radio station. Recently on Agriculture of America, University of Illinois professor Gary Schnitke has been looking at projected break-evens for the 2022 crop. Gary, what did you find as you look out to this next growing season? 
if we're looking at uh, total cost, and this would be for producing an acre of corn, we're looking at cost over $1,000 per acre. That's the first time that has happened on average in Illinois, if it does in fact happen in 2022. $1,064 is the precise estimate we're, we're looking at in central Illinois, but uh, that is a record level. And that's um, over, uh, over $100 higher than the 2021 uh, cost. And it, again, is a record level of total cost of producing corn. And uh, a lot of that's led by fertilizer, but all costs have gone up. For the information important to rural America, join us every day right here on AOA. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, December, January, February, that's the time of the year that agriculture makes time to get together in person. Of course, that has happened less and less over the past two years during the COVID outbreak. But as that, fingers crossed, fades into the background or, you know, people just start doing their own thing, they're getting back together. And uh, one of the ag events going on this week is the Potato Expo out in Anaheim, California. Joining me today to talk about it is National Potato Council CEO Cam Quarles. Cam, how are things? out in California today. Hey, Mike, it's great to be with you. Happy New Year. Uh, the weather report from California, I'm standing outside right now, bright sunshine, not a cloud in the sky. It's gonna be 70 degrees today. So it's hard to hard to have a better uh, setup for what is going to be our first in-person event uh, for the industry in two years. So we're thrilled to thrilled to be here. Yeah, that is exciting. Of course, potatoes grown all over the West. What are you expecting attendance to look like, given that international travel is still a, kind of a bear in 2022? Yeah, you know, it's it's challenging. Two years ago, we had the largest potato expo that we had ever had, uh, well over 2,000 people. We had the entire North American industry under one roof in Vegas. Um, you know, obviously with COVID, you've got uh, travel restrictions, as you mentioned, some of our international attendees have got some challenges getting here. Still have a bunch of them coming in, though. Uh, you know, and it's pretty uh, pretty obvious the weather the weather challenges that some folks have had this week uh, getting around the country. So it, we had we had assumed that our uh, we are not going to hit those heights that we saw in Vegas, but we still have a very solid group of attendees here, and we've got a great program to welcome all those who are able to make the trip. So uh, we're we're thrilled by it. I, I think the enthusiasm of the folks who are here is kind of off the chart because they've they've been looking forward to to kicking off the year uh, all together, and they obviously weren't able to do that last year, uh, and so this. Uh, Getting getting to see the whole industry again is a, is a great thing for our folks. It is exciting when you think back over the last two years. I, there's a lot that's changed in the realms of international trade. USMCA has been implemented more and more. What are you expecting of the, the folks coming to Anaheim to be talking about? What's going to be on their minds this year, Cam? Yeah, we tried to anticipate that, Mike, and I think we've got an incredibly strong uh, program that hits on a lot of those key things that are on their minds uh, every day. Uh, we have a big economic study on what the effect of, what the liker, likely future 
uh, for inflationary impacts is going to be on the on the industry where our input price is going to be going. Uh, we've got discussions on supply chain challenges and hopefully how those are getting a little bit more back to normal here in the next in the next year. Uh, we, as you mentioned, on the international trade front, of course, we've we've uh, been working on a number of these key issues. USMCA, the countries involved there, are front and center. Uh, we've had you know our our Mexico fresh access issue has been out there, um, and then. As you may be aware, the potato industry over the last couple of years, even though the pandemic has been going on, we have been engaged in this massive effort to create a foundation to secure the future leadership of this great industry. And so we've got a lot of great uh, information to share. The the foundation fundraising event, uh, fundraising campaign that's been going on for the last uh, two years has hit its targets. It's just been a it's been a great freight train of enthusiasm to support the future of this industry. So, ton of great things to talk about this week. That is exciting. You know, an industry is only as good as the training they're putting forward and the next people coming up in that industry. You got to pass that knowledge on. Kim, you mentioned the fresh potato issues into Mexico. This is something there, there's been a bit of a standstill in the potato industry. Can you explain to our listeners who might not be connected to potatoes what's happened and how that might change here in this next year with regard to Mexico? Sure, Mike. Yeah. So this is, a, as I've, I've told people, this is a trade dispute that if it was a person, how long it has been going on. If it was a person, this person, uh, this trade dispute would be old enough to serve in the military, drink, and now it could run for Congress because it's 25 years old. That is is how long this thing has been going on. It's a real challenge. Uh, The U.S. industry has been pushing to get full access to Mexico for fresh potatoes for 25 years. And uh, there has been a lot of twists and turns in this saga uh, one key key moment was when the Mexican Supreme Court actually re- ruled unanimously in the U.S.'s favor back in April. Um, those that precedent that was set by the Mexican Supreme Court uh, essentially wiped away the last restrictions that would prevent our access to Mexico. Uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Secretary Vilsack, the team at USDA APHIS, and all all of the all of the folks at USTR on Capitol Hill did some great work in the last few months of 2021, working with their Mexican counterparts. Uh, the the market uh, is effectively uh, open for um, for trade to begin. Um, there are a, a last few um, requirements that we have really on the U.S. shipper side of things. We've got to make sure that. Uh, we have uh, follow all of the rules that Mexico has established for our exports there. But when you look forward, Mike, um, it's going to it's going to start slowly. And we want to do this in a measured way where it's benefiting the U.S. Uh, Mexican consumers as well as the Mexican growers. If we do that in a measured way, we're thinking this is going to be potentially one hundred and fifty million dollar uh, market for U.S. fresh potatoes over the next few years. So well worth the many, many years that we've put into getting this to the right place. Absolutely. And you touched on supply chain challenges. Have most potato producers been able to retain enough truckers and keep enough freight moving to uh, to not be hamstrung by supply issues? You know, it's a challenge. I, I, I think generally folks would say as, as the weeks go on, 
the, 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 the system is, is writing itself slowly, but, uh, you know, obviously there's been a lot of, a lot of challenges there. I think they're braced for everything, but, um, we're hopeful that we are slowly, slowly, slowly getting back to a, a, a new, more manageable normal looking towards 2022. That's what we're all hoping for. Have fun at the Potato Expo out in Anaheim over the next two days. And listeners, tune in tomorrow. We'll be talking the impact of WOTUS on counties across the country. Thanks for listening to AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.